Hello, it's me, Jesse Single, without my usual co-host, Katie Herzog. I feel unencumbered. This is a special bonus episode of Blocked and Reported, an interview with one of my favorite youth gender clinicians. I met Dr. Erica Anderson for lunch in San Francisco when I was working on my story in The Atlantic about youth gender dysphoria back in 2018. Dr. Anderson is herself trans. She transitioned as an adult, despite what she viewed as unfair and overly harsh gatekeeping and questioning. And in both my conversations with her and the quotes she's given to other journalists, she has always come across as a deeply thoughtful, kind individual. One who is willing to stick her neck out a bit so as to communicate the full complexity and nuance of what she does for a living. Since youth gender dysphoria has become such a raging, culture-war-infused controversy, and because mainstream coverage of it is almost universally abysmal, I invited her on the podcast for a long, wide-ranging conversation about her work, and was quite grateful she accepted. Dr. Anderson is a veritable encyclopedia of knowledge on the subject, given her years of clinical experience and given that she works with young people ranging from just two or three all the way up to young adults. Here's a quick rundown of her background before we get to the interview itself. Dr. Erica E. Anderson serves on the medical staff of the University of California, San Francisco Benioff Children's Hospital in Behavioral Pediatrics, where she works in the Child and Adolescent Gender Clinic in Pediatric Endocrinology. She also has a private consulting practice pertaining to LGBT issues. Dr. Anderson has a PhD in clinical psychology, a master's in theology, and has spent four decades working in health psychology, public health, healthcare management, and pediatrics. She is currently writing not one but two books, a memoir and a book on transgender sexuality. This brief intro only captures a tiny fraction of what Dr. Anderson has done in her life. She's a fascinating person, and I highly recommend you check out both her website at dreericaanderson.com and a video interview she did for the Treader Transgender Oral History Project, which I'll link to in the show notes alongside a bunch of other resources on this contentious subject. Katie and I are releasing this interview on our public feed because we think it's a very important subject that doesn't deserve to be paywalled. But the only reason I was able to research, record, edit, and publish this interview is because of our patrons, the kind-hearted souls who pay $5 per month or more for our premium subscription service. This subscription gets you at least three extra episodes per month, access to dozens of extra back episodes, as well as various other perks. If you find this interview useful or enjoy public episodes of Blocked and Reported more generally, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. If you're already a patron, thank you very much. You are the reason I was able to do this interview. Without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Erica Anderson. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Erica Anderson, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me. It's my pleasure. You know, as I mentioned in the intro, you you have a really interesting story yourself, and I'll include a link to that great uh, video you did. But um, there's just there's so much to talk about with this youth stuff, and it's so sort of, I think it's safe to say it gets pretty combative, doesn't it? It does. It's unfortunately sort of been polarized by the culture wars in the last couple of years. Yes. Uh, and and uh, our introduction was when we got lunch when I was reporting on my Atlantic article on transitioners and detransitioners and, and this whole thing. And, you know, talking to you and a few other clinicians really gave me a lot of respect for this kind of work when it's done well. Um, so I think one of my goals is to just help listeners 
I think listeners might have a skewed view of what this sort of work entails in either direction because of that polarization. So maybe we could just start like you have a new patient in your office. What are the initial sessions like? What what do you do to try to get to know why they're there and the nature of their gender concerns? Right. So there are two ways I could see a patient for the first time. One would be in the center or second in my office. And I proceed slightly differently because, of course, at the at the university, we're an interdisciplinary uh, pediatric specialty clinic. Our initial appointments then are always with a medical provider, a pediatric endocrinologist, and a psychologist. And um, in pre-COVID times, we would we would uh, do sort of sequential uh, interviews, usually on the same day, uh, with the same patient and parents or family. Um, in COVID times, interestingly enough, we, we do them together on Zoom, which has introduced a whole new element because we have an opportunity to, to uh, interview together the same family at the same time and hear the same things for the first time from each child and family. And we have each of us, each of the pairs of us that work together, have developed a kind of a style of uh, fluidly interacting with each other. Sometimes it's it's medical interview, then psychological interview, but oftentimes it's kind of a mixture. And that um, is dictated mostly by what we see with the child in front of us and their family and uh, where we want to go in terms of finding out more about this child. The, the range of reasons a kid could show up to a gender clinic uh, is pretty wide. Give, give me a sense of some of the sort of initial concerns or complaints you get when you're, when you're first getting to know a kid. Right. Um, that's right. And it depends a lot on the age, age of the child, the situation in the family, and the uh, stage of their gender journey. <clears throat> With very young children, uh, more and more, we're meeting kids who have been uh, expressing a gender different than the sex that was assigned to them at birth and or are gender creative, gender expressive. And, um, and the parents often uh, these days, at least in our clinic, are supportive of this child, this unique child, but they realize that they are different than typical children who are what we say cisgender, whose uh, gender aligns with their sex as assigned at birth. And so they're coming to us to just sort of check in. And, um, and we say in our clinic, establish care, which is to say, just sort of recognize that this is a special child. Often with these children, there's no medical problem. And so the initial contact is very heavily oriented around the development and adjustment of the child and the, and the family. And then parent cons- consulting. Um, such young children can be very um, uh, direct and very um, definite about their gender being different than their sex as assigned at birth. And in few cases, um, such children have been uh, very quite naturally permitted to what we say socially transition to living in the gender that is affirmed, that aligns with, with who they say they are. For those children, it's it's uh, just checking in with the family, seeing what needs they may have. As the child approaches puberty, that's where some of the more intensive work begins. 
Uh, we do some of that in the clinic, but it also happens by virtue of our community provider partners. These are mental health professionals who are gender specialists. Do, do you mind if we sort of do this in chronological order? Because yeah. there's such different issues with the, there are. the kids and then sort of approaching adolescence. And in my reporting on this, there is such a difference in opinion among different clinicians. Some of them, and I think this is the trajectory of things, they view a five-year-old socially transitioning as not a particularly big deal because there's no uh, medical procedures involved. And you do see a lot of misinformation on this, particularly on the right. You'll see people say that there's some sort of surgical or hormonal intervention going on in five and six-year-olds, which is never the case. That is correct. In fact, this last week, uh, we saw that played out in the Senate of the United States, where a senator asked questions of a nominee for a position in the government, in HHS, and uh, exploited that opportunity to characterize the gender-affirming work with youth as constituting genital mutilation and, if, if I may, amputation. And that is, that is the farthest thing from the truth, and it's a gross uh, over-dramatization of some of the issues. Um, so yes, there, there are people who, who uh, believe that we're giving hormones to babies and uh, causing them to to be uh, a, a certain way, and that's not at all what we're doing. The, uh, there's been a lot of influence from the so-called Dutch clinic in Amsterdam, and their view has been they don't discourage kids from sort of expressing so-called cross-gender feelings or whatever you want to call it. But they also, they don't really encourage social transition either, unless a kid gets to a certain age and is in this sort of shouting distance of of puberty blockers. There's a sense that for a five or six-year-old, their sense of self is still, has so much development ahead of it, there's a risk that if you socially transition them now, you could cause problems later versus, versus letting them just exist in a more liminal in-between gender space. What do you think is the right way to approach that question? The right way is to tune into each individual child. And there are such vast individual differences all the way from <clears throat> temporary <clears throat> or fleeting experimentation of gender expression on the part of a young child to uh, very insistent, uh, consistent presentation uh, of a gender different than sex as assigned at birth. And, it, and that it has persisted and that it is, uh, it is clear in all uh, venues of the child's life, all spheres in which they're <clears throat> they living, that they present a consistent way that identified or affirmed gender. So that, those are very different clinical pictures. And some of the challenge for us as child psychologists, of course, is to try to understand how uh, enduring is this going to be. We're, it's, we're loath to predict. We know that many children experiment with gender expression, and that's actually true more and more, uh, particularly in, uh, in more progressive uh, areas of uh, the, the world, the United States. And uh, so sometimes, as the Dutch have, have said, uh, experimentation runs a certain course, and then uh, a child might revert back to the sex that uh, is assigned at birth. Um, and that um, further, that some children who are, who are uh, prohibited from experimenting resist all the more 
and uh, and then it becomes uh, something of a battle in the family, and we want certainly to avoid that. Um, we we practice, as you know, the gender affirmative model, which is we want to be accepting and affirming of every child. But as you say, we, we also want to recognize that every child doesn't express a gender and and continue to do so into puberty and, and adolescence. I mean, I know this depends hugely on developmental psychology and age ranges. Five and six and seven-year-olds have can have pretty childlike understandings of gender. And and the stories you hear from clinicians are, you know, a kid will say, I want long hair, so I should be a girl. Or I uh, I want to play sports, so I should be a boy. Uh, a friend of mine has, has this, this great daughter. She's just – she's a hilarious kid. She one time said she wanted to cut her hair short like a boy so she could run faster on the soccer field. How often is that part of the clinical picture or do you get a subset of kids where like the issues are, are almost always more serious than that? That's that we do. And, uh, and therefore uh, our cases uh, tend not to be the ones where a child is uh, fixated or consumed with one version of a stereo of a gender role stereotype. There is still a lot of enforcement of traditional binary gender roles. So I, I have had a child, for example, who has said, um, well, I want to be a, as of that age group. I want to be a boy because boys are treated better. And, and you know, <laughs> adults hearing that sometimes gasp <laughs> because who, who wants to answer? Is that true still right. or right. not? You know, uh, but the, the versions that you that you've heard. Um, are certainly true, you know, that uh, my own, I have a sister, I have two sisters, but one of them uh, was very athletic and played with the boys up until puberty and even after, but for a long time, really, uh, she's nine years younger, so I watched her grow up. Um, she, she didn't think anything about it. And then as she got older, and of course, as she got into puberty, people would call attention to the fact that she was female and they raised questions about whether she should be playing with the boys as she had been for years. Um, and there's a lot of enforcement of gender roles in a very subtle way. And it's the uh, special set of parents or parent who can look at their eye, their child with uh, open, op an open mind and, and an open heart and just say, what, what is what is going on with this child? Who is my child? And what are they telling us about themselves? And be willing to just accept. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean that, you know, behavior that no one would condone should be tolerated. But um, in terms of gender expression, you know, long hair has been acceptable for male children in various societies uh, in, for millennia. And it kind of comes and goes in USA. You know, uh, you know, very young children who were male looked very much like very young children who were female, even including uh, attire uh, a century ago. You know, and 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 you know the fashions come and go. So you know the the ability. I hear a lot of, for example, transmasculine uh, patients, young patients who who say. They want to. They want to only wear clothes that people characterize as boys, even though they they themselves are girls. And um, you know, it's a it's a very interesting subject. And people do mistake superficial things 
for an indication of gender uh, questioning or gender experimentation, and they may or may not be. Yeah, I think the sort of devil's advocate point I've heard a lot, I'd say, is how would you respond to someone who says this? Okay, your your five or six year old wants long hair, wants to dress up as a princess sometimes, to, despite being uh, assigned male at birth. Let them do that. Who cares? That doesn't mean they have to actually transition. It doesn't mean they literally are a girl. What, what's the response to that? I agree. I I agree. Uh, I think experimentation is good. I don't. I as you, I I assume understand. I am not assuming anything by how a child presents. In fact, uh, more than not, more often than not, when children talk with me, I I will inquire further and invite them to tell me more about the words that they're using, you know, and that this is particularly true as we get into talking about uh, adolescence, that they're using all kinds of terminology that is foreign to people who are much older. And I would say there's a high level of inconsistency about the use of terms and language. And- I was going to say, I'm not sure it's an age thing. So, some of the terms really just are used in a million, you know, genderqueer can mean a million different things, right? E- exactly. Exactly. So, so somebody says, uh, I'm queer. I, I listen and I say, oh, okay. And what does that mean to you? And I get different answers. I've talked to clinicians, including for the Atlantic piece, who have gotten pushback, sometimes from the trans community, suggesting that even doing that, even that sort of basic clinical work of what do you mean by that, is invalidating. What do you think about that? I think that's hogwash. Uh, I'm not going to abdicate my role and responsibility of looking out for the welfare of a child by simply uh, accepting a five-year-old's appraisal of the world. You know, I, I don't do that about other things. You know, if, if, if children characterize their social relationships in a certain way, uh, I may or may not agree. You know, what, uh, what constitutes bullying, uh, according to one child, I, I may or may not agree with. Uh, so I, I think that um, a strident, in some cases, a rejection of what is often called gatekeeping is a is a uh, is really does a disservice, I think, to everyone because there there are very few things that uh, have to do with psychology and adjustment and development that we don't investigate, that we don't query and and try to understand. Uh, I ha- I was in a basically a case collaboration yesterday with pediatric neurologist, a child psychiatrist, child psychologist, and myself. I'm the I was the gender person on this team. This young person has a very complicated history of uh, learning issues, of cognitive differences, of uh, psychological, even psychiatric issues, and, uh, and, and is presenting as, as a different gender than their sex is assigned at birth. And, and uh, their symptom picture uh, changes over time. And so we're, we're trying to figure it out. And, uh, and I don't have any assumption, I'm not a simply a, person who's going to say, oh, this kid says they're X, um, therefore we should hurry down the runway, uh, taking all the steps that uh, are required for someone who is X. Um, that, that's, that's not responsible, in my view. But, but I've come across clinicians who, and activists who, in a case like that, would say that all of the kid's other problems 
are simply caused by the fact that they haven't fully transitioned or been affirmed enough yet. It sounds like you think that's not a nuanced enough understanding of how this stuff works. It is not. Co-occurring conditions can be related in many different ways. And and a case example I was just talking about, it's a very complicated mixture. And, and whether the child's distress is related to their psychiatric uh, issues or even disorders or is a byproduct of gender dysphoria is a very complicated question. And I think, I think to oversimplify and say that all psychological distress of, of gender creative transgender people is related to their gender dysphoria flies in the face of what we know about uh, co-occurring uh, psychological disorders. Would it be safe to say that when you have a kid with those sorts of comorbidities, sometimes when you treat the other stuff, the depression or the anxiety, it alleviates the gender issues and sometimes it doesn't? I think that's fair. And as you and I know, someone hearing this who wants to defend a, a lockstep gender affirming model that doesn't question anything might take exception to my answer. And uh, I would say, I, I don't know that anyone, uh, anyone has evaluated all possible combinations of psychological conditions uh, to the extent that would yield a, a definitive answer to, which is, it's sort of a chicken and the egg. It's like, does gender dysphoria cause other things? Sometimes. Do other things cause gender dysphoria? Sometimes. And what we need to know is what's true in the case of this individual child. What I find a little bit heartbreaking is the extent to which that view has been pathologized. And it seems like there's a sense in which people people's hearts are in the right place, but could be pushing for sort of almost a two-tiered system, where if you have gender dysphoria, you're not going to get the same... I mean, obviously, there's mental health care gaps throughout the country, but assuming you have access to good mental health care, someone with GD is is not going to get the same careful, holistic care they'd get if they came in with anxiety or depression or any other condition where the clinician would feel empowered to explore various roads and to ask a bunch of questions. I share some concern uh, about that as well, and um, particularly now that uh, it's kind of in vogue for mental health people to see trans people. Um, most of the mental health professionals who are seeing trans people are ill-equipped and, and really are not as nuanced as we're trying to be in this conversation in our, and in our understanding. Um, one, one thing that is really important to acknowledge, and I think we, we both do because we've talked a number of times, is that the cultural landscape has shifted. And <clears throat> if we think about it, I'm a psychologist, as you probably know, for 40 years. So I, I have seen this shift and actually uh, stages of this shift. So, you know, there are a number of, uh, I'll say, older uh, trans adults who were subjected to a fairly abusive gatekeeping. And that you had firsthand experience with, 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 you know, it wasn't the nightmare stories you hear, but you were cut off from care you needed by ignorant clinicians, right? I, I was. I was. So I'm not unsympathetic to the historical problems. On the other hand, um, that was an era which was governed by a very binary understanding of gender. And this was applied in the area of transgender health. So even the early practitioners were 
devoted to helping trans people uh, medicalize and transition to being uh, to living authentically in as they often used to say the opposite gender so you know there was there was a certain expectation then and and also there was a recognition which is not wrong that living as trans is really hard and that one ought not do it lightly and that the professionals supporting such a person shouldn't be naive about how challenging it is. And uh, things have uh, fortunately shifted to the, to the point where people recognize their own identity uh, younger and younger. They don't go through often uh, years of personal torment and living in the closet uh, secretively wondering, will they ever be able to be themselves? And, uh, and now there are many more empathic and competent providers who, once they meet such a person, can help them explore their gender and help them, assist them, support them in, in the patient making their choices responsibly for themselves. Um, so th that recognition, I think, is lost in some of these conversations. And some, some people who are uh, advocates for trans people kind of ignore the developmental issues that are in play with children and adolescents and just sort of treat them like little adults and just sort of say, well, that's what the kid says. That's what they are. We should treat them accordingly. And I think that's frankly a misguided perspective because, um, you know, if a 12 year old says to us, uh, well, I think I'm done with school now. You know, I don't need anything. You know, do we let them? Not, right? It's invalidating to say I think you should still stay yeah, in school. Exactly. Well, why are you not affirming their personal choices? Well, we don't affirm all choices of minors without question, uh, without exception. That isn't how we raise children to be happy and healthy and competent. So, I, I it, it's a, it's a. I mean, what's challenging, I know, for you and I is to try to address some of these issues. Uh, more completely, uh, compassionately, certainly, and and to recognize the confluence of all of these factors, the social change, the difference in point of view of different cohorts or age groups or generations, and uh, and and to realize that on the whole we are making progress, that um, the professions are more sophisticated. We've come across some uh, medicines, uh, you know that are supportive uh, for those uh, people who need them. Uh, we've also become much more uh, appreciative of individual differences and that not all trans people will continue to assert a trans identity. Not all people who even assert a trans identity choose to have um, gender affirming medicines. And certainly not all trans people even taking medicines would choose to have gender affirming surgeries. These are very individual decisions. And so, you know, the detractors um, have to recognize that evaluation is necessary, not to put a roadblock in the way, but to uh, really support the individual in making the choices that are optimal for them. Are you, are you comfortable with this idea that like, then when someone is 18, informed consent, meaning that they get final say, end of subject is the best approach? Or do you think basically everyone, especially people on the younger 
in the younger span of adulthood would benefit from some counseling and guidance? Well, I I hear the hear the horror stories and the problems of people who uh, seem to have been expedited through the process of gender affirming uh, transition care, and uh, and I do not think that there's you know uh, one size fits all, and I also do not think that it's uh, useful, frankly, to to somehow create another false binary which is that anyone under 18 is not competent to make such decisions and everyone over 18 is. It's really a function of maturity, their life situation and the complexity of their issues. I see many young people who are, who are in COVID times uh, notwithstanding, who are essentially still children in their parents' homes at 19, 20, 21, totally dependent financially very dependent emotionally. And, you know, I don't think those, those young people are uh, capable. They are legally permitted to make these decisions, but I don't think they should do so without the support of their families, without the uh, support actually of professionals who are competent. And, uh, and so I'm always wary when I hear of a situation where somebody who's 18, 19, 20, uh, uh, presents for care and just says, give me the hormones. You know, it's like, well, okay. Uh, why do you say that? <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and there's a lot of other questions I have, which I'm sure you can appreciate. I guess the counterpoint to that would be, you know, not everyone's in a position where they can get that help or have family support. So aren't you potentially doing more harm by continuing to cut them off from access to hormones? Well, I, I don't think I cut anybody off from hormones. No, uh, no, I didn't mean you particularly. I mean, yeah, it's like hypo, hypothetical. Yeah, yeah. but um, there are uh, avenues for uh, young people to pursue that will allow them to use the informed consent approach, including, if I may invoke a name of an organization, Planned Parenthood, that in many of its uh, facilities does provide gender-affirming care to, uh, to young people. Um, just like they provide, uh, you know, supportive counseling and even medical care to sexually active young people. So, you know, th we're, um, we're such a complicated society in terms of our understanding of, of psychological health and independence. And, you know, we have to, for legal reasons, pick an age for various things. But even in my lifetime, we've sort of changed our view about, well, what should be the age of alcohol consumption or cigarette consumption or voting and you know i think therein lies uh, an illustration of how we don't really always agree on what uh constitutes a competent uh adult i think back to your uh invoking of of the dutch so in the netherlands my understanding is the age of majority is 16 and uh and that's an interesting uh, issue because, of course, that means that they can vote, they can <clears throat> uh, buy cigarettes, they can uh, drink alcohol. And uh, I dare say, if we tried to make the age of majority 16 in the United States, I don't think it would succeed, at least for the next few years. So we have a complicated uh, uh, understanding of what maturity means. Uh, having done some work as a psychologist, as an expert witness, 
you know, sometimes the question becomes, you know, is, is this person competent to make decisions about their legal defense? Or retrospectively, was this person competent when they made a decision to act in that way? Um, these are complicated questions. I, I, I'm always wary of going down this road because I, I know, you know, bad outcomes in horror stories have been used to reduce access to affirming care. I think that's a fair critique of some of my work. I mean, you could argue the balance isn't right, but you did mention seeing the horror stories of that sort of expedited, less than thoughtful access. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's rare in the, in the work that I do to encounter someone who uh, has regrets. Uh, most of the people that I work with are practicing according to standards of care and they're very thorough and, and all that. But I do see some uh, cases time to time where people uh, go through a process, uh, social transition, uh, maybe even um, hormones, and then they have uh, second thoughts. And uh, I don't think this is necessarily a, a failure of whatever system that they that they uh, that they participated in. I I have been saying for years that I think uh, both sexual and gender identity can be very fluid. And that 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 it isn't once and done. Uh, that you know, we used to think that you know you were either born gay or straight, and then that was it. And I think the behavior of people uh, belies something different. That you know, people can change uh, more than we may have thought in the past. And also the the uh, the prevalence of inclinations to be gender variant or or to be other than straight are uh, in higher proportion in the population than people recognize. I mean, Kinsey, you know, more than half a century ago in his surveys showed that, you know, a larger proportion of the population had had same-sex sexual experiences than was ever believed. And the recent surveys, there was one published last, last week or this last week by <clears throat> Gallup, and uh, broadcast by NBC that shows that uh, succeeding generations more and more claim a gender or a sexual uh, identity that's we would call a minority, um, and that there's a clear trend. I would I call it a trend now because you can see it across the various generations from baby boom, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, blah blah blah, and and really young people um, that they assert. Uh, uh, other than a cisgender identity, uh, that they assert uh, a sexual preference different than straight. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's change happening. I think it's, if I, if I, if I had to think about it, I, I would say it's, it's, it's always been a higher proportion of people than the general population believed. But many people don't act on these uh, inclinations or preferences. And and many people were scared. I mean, you know, in a society that was binary and repressive, uh, homophobic and transphobic, and uh, you know, it's just, it, it wasn't safe for many people. It still isn't safe, depending upon you and where you are. Yeah. Um, so you say that in, in your work, you don't see a lot of regret. You, you did once tell me in an email, I quoted you in my newsletter, as saying you regularly quote, encounter providers ignorant of the standards of care of WPATH, 
that's the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, sort of a major, um, you know, the, the trans health organization, uh, and assertive slash anxious patients who have no tolerance for careful evaluation. It's a toxic brew. So I, I guess one theory I have is that outside of your, you know, Boston's and New York's and San Francisco's and LA's, there's a bit of a wild west and probably a lot of, um, you alluded to this, but a lot of clinicians who don't entirely know what they're doing or how to do a comprehensive evaluation. That's true. That's true. And, uh, you know, I'll see, I'll see letters of support written by therapists in California who are of, of the type you, you name, which is they never got any training. They, they are very cavalier about this. They just sort of do their best job. Uh, they may be very competent uh, clinicians in mental health, but um, some of the things they say are pretty appalling. Like, for example, for a trans kid, um, the the letter is written in the pronoun of the sex assigned at birth throughout. And the clinician seems to have no insight into the fact that they're writing a letter to support gender affirming care, but the very letter that they've written is somewhat less than fully uh, supportive of gender affirming care. So, you know, these are the things we, we encounter. My endocrinologist colleagues and I chat when we encounter it, but we sometimes encounter well-meaning physicians, primary care physicians or pediatricians who started kids on hormones, but they haven't they haven't done it in a way that's consistent with the practice guidelines. And, you know, for a, a, a good example would be a teenager who's put on spiritolactone, a trans female teenager, when, you know, there is the, the opportunity to be on blockers rather than spiral. And, you know, that Meaning blockers would, in theory, buy her some time to figure it out before, yeah. instead of going straight to hormone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and also it's a more elegant solution. Uh, because it blocks the hormones at their source, but but you know the sophistication that that my colleagues bring to this work is notable. Uh, you know, our, the the medical director of our clinic, as you know, was maybe principal author of the endocrine society guidelines for this work. You know that were published uh, in 2017. So you know I. I'm working with people who I have high confidence in. And the other thing is what is clear to all of us is that we, we do it together, that we don't, we don't just look at a kid medically. We don't just look at a kid psychologically. We look at the whole, you know, person and, and not just the patient, but their family situation and family history and the history of medical and psychological issues with, within the family. So you know, we're trying to be as comprehensive as we can. Unfortunately, we don't have as much time as we like at times, but we we do a pretty credible job, I think. There's going to be an increasing number of parents taking their kids to uh, gender clinics in the years to come. And the the U.S. system is very patchy. All the rules you mentioned are non-binding. There's no sort of um, regulatory apparatus in place. What Are there any quick and dirty like things to look for you would say to a parent of like here here's a red flag on the part of a clinician other than than fairly obvious on their face things like um misgendering i'd uh, suggest to parents to ask the clinician so uh do you follow the w path guidelines 
do you know about the endocrine society guidelines um have you taken some uh of the coursework from the global education institute of wpath you know where have you gotten trained to to do this work here's a, here's something i was going to say earlier which i'll say at this point uh you know in the bay area we have and i'm a member of some of these groups uh, uh consortia of providers who are LGBTQ uh, friendly, in many cases, self-identified as such. And I think for a few years, I think it's changing some, but for a few years, I think people, you know, they saw that alphabet collection and they just sort of saw, thought, well, let's just find a psychologist who's LGBTQ friendly. And, and that psychologist may be gay or lesbian, and they may have worked with many patients who are gay or lesbian and maybe even children who are proto-gay or proto-lesbian and coming out or whatever. But uh, gender issues are not, uh, are not just uh, another version of gay or lesbian. And that's also a, a, a challenge for everyone in that there is, as you know, a conflation of sexual orientation and sexual attractions with gender identity and gender expression. So that's another uh, aspect that is important to uh, parse and, and sort out. That actually came up with my my absent co-host. We were just talking about how like for, for sort of historical and activist reasons, exactly what you just said, gender identity and sexual orientation are often conflated. It seems like while while many people might go through a period of not knowing what their sexual orientation is, at the end of the day, it becomes pretty clear cut for most people. I, I've always thought gender identity is such a more sort of slippery fish because you're you're relying on this sense of what it means to quote feel like a boy or feel like a girl that is just inherently so subjective and and culturally influenced, right? It is, and and that's where. Uh... Uh, some of the conversations with families, with parents get complicated because they say, well, my child has a lot of friends who are LGBTQ and they talk all the time. And, and during COVID times, they're online talking to people all over the world about these issues. And uh, uh, it, it concerns me because uh, we, we know uh, anecdotally and, and uh, from some limited uh, study that there's often a delay between a self-awareness of, of a gender identity different than sex as assigned at birth and coming out. And the coming out uh, in America, at least, typically uh, more, more usually involves uh, coming out to peers first and then to parents. Uh, I've seen it the other way, but that's more the exception than the rule. So. So what happens uh, is, you know, with a supportive, uh, accepting peer group, a kid says, well, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure about my identity. And then for a while, I thought I was non-binary. Maybe that was it. And then now I realize I'm whatever. I'm, you know, male, I'm female, or I'm mask of center or femme of center or whatever. And then they'll, even when I'm talking to them, they'll often offer their sexual orientation as a part of that discussion. But so this, this, this participation with peers, which is an accepting environment, has gone on some cases for a while. Sometimes there's a delay, a, a pr pretty considerable delay, like, you know, kids who 
thinking are thinking internally about their differences and then they talk with peers and they talk with peers for months a year two years before they tell parents then then parents looking at this picture they say well is there an influence of the peers and that's where that whole issue as you and i know of rogd and blah 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 comes in but i i it's a tough it's a tough discussion because historically all you know everybody knows that that peer influence in teenagers is is high that acceptance by peers is much desired and so you you wonder well what does that mean and um and then you add the element that you just brought up which is um what do you mean your gender is x how do you know and uh and and uh, often the answers coming back are uh uh well i just i feel like i am i feel more aligned with that identity and that that sounds t- to some parents very squishy like you know well it doesn't sound solid to me and so we're in this kind of dilemma of well what's true and i my as my peers would attest i am often saying in an initial consultation well our job here is to learn as much as we can about this young person to determine together what's true and if we can agree on what's true and and what's true may or may not be a definitive gender identity but there may be a lot of aspects of of facts about a child that are that are true then okay we can talk about that we can collaborate on thinking about that is the basis <clears throat> for us talking about what do we do next you know do we go forward with any uh, gender affirming medical interventions do we do we uh, support a child picking a preferred name different pronouns coming out at school and having people at school recognize them including the administration as a uh, gender variant and then you know long term you know legal name and gender change you know when they get older surgeries these are these are hard decisions i i think you basically only see media accounts of that transition process but but what would be a situation where you guys in one of the most progressive gender clinics in the world say you know we're not we're not sure you should change your name or come out on at school like how how do you broach that with a teenager you know, or a preteen who might have strong feelings about this and, and, and think things that you and your team and their parents don't agree with? <clears throat> well, first of all, because of the selection bias, we, it's, it's, uh, it's less common, as you, as you know. Right. But when, when, we, when we do encounter that situation, I sometimes use language like, well, you know, maybe we could slow walk this. You know, maybe there's some other questions that we have that we want to answer. Maybe you need to live with this for a little while. And um, and this question that you raised now has become quite um, relevant in the era of COVID where young people by and large have, have been going to school on Zoom from home. They have not had the level of uh, in-person peer interaction that they had pre-COVID. And so kids are more reliant than ever on social media and their uh, connection through technology to, to peers, some of whom may be 
uh, known to them only through this technology that they've never met in, as we say, in real life. So then we have a situation, and I've encountered this a fair number of times actually, where the coming out has been in COVID era. And so you have a, a highly um, unique a situation for this child, different than what was true before, highly unique situation for the family, different than what was true before. And if, as I have encountered, this young person has said, well, you know, I have had a lot more time to think and talk to people online. And this is what I've concluded about myself, but they've never, I'll say it this way, never lived in their affirmed gender outside of their uh, bubble right. at home during COVID. So if it's a couple of months, I literally have had conversations with parents that, you know, I'm talking with your young person and I believe them. This is what they think right now. I said, but they have no idea what's coming in terms of presenting in public in their affirmed gender, uh, going through the period uh, as they would likely of uh, transforming their physical appearance uh, in a way that, um, in a way marks them as trans. And, uh, you know, in a, in a really progressive accepting society and school, like many of our kids live in, that's one thing, but for young people who live in a different kind of situation, it, it can be very tough. I can't tell you how many situations I've encountered where parents have made a decision with their child to switch schools, not for academic reasons, but so that the child can, uh, make a fresh start at a new school in, a, in an affirmed gender, that, that often can work and can promote. It's sad though that anyone would have to resort to that and you would hope that 10 years from now they wouldn't. Exactly. And, and again, uh, to restate the obvious, I'm in the Bay Area. So if, if families resort to that in the Bay Area, then what? I mean, I have kids who are going to parochial schools who have come out to their friends, but literally, I'm not kidding you, literally they go to the administration and they say, this is my preferred name and pronoun. And the administration says, in effect, they're patronizing. They're, they say, well, that's great. We love you. We love you just as you are, but could you like just still use your other name? And uh, it's California, you know? Right. It's like, wow. And it's 2021. I mean, wow. So, um, you know, knowing what it's, knowing what you want and actually living it are not the same. And that's where maturity comes in because some kids sort of get that. They kind of know they don't know everything. And other kids somehow have themselves convinced that they've learned everything there is to learn about being trans in America. And they got it. They don't really need any help. <laughs> Well, that tends to 15 and 16 year olds tend to believe they've figured it all out on all subjects. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So yeah, let's, let's dive into some of this sort of youth medical transition and adolescent stuff, because one of the reasons, um, I, I like you and appreciate you as a public presence on this stuff is like, you're, no one could deny that you are pro-affirming care and want what's best for these kids. But you also you also give quotes like this one from 2018 in the Washington Post. I think a fair number of kids are getting into it because it's trendy. 
I'm often the naysayer at our meetings. I'm not sure it's always really trans. I think in our haste to be supportive, we're missing that element. Kids are all about being accepted by their peers. It's trendy for professionals too. The response I often hear to that is like, why would anyone want to be trans? It's it's an oppressed group. It's a group that gets murdered. But I, I don't know. It just seems if you poke around online in a lot of communities, you do get some degree of of social cachet by adopting a new ad- identity, right? I think so. <clears throat> and uh, and some people want to dismiss that, you know, and uh, I don't. Uh, you know, I have too much professional background, too much lived experience. I've been paying attention to these issues for too long to to think that, you know, uh, you can just gloss over something. Yeah. And and I guess my my views on this come from like sitting down with kids and their parents who just straightforwardly tell me like I, I was confused for a little while because everyone, you know, a bunch of kids in my class came out as non-binary or trans. I thought I was too. Oftentimes they'll go through like a bunch of different identity labels, like just sort of shuffling through them in a short span is that just sort of does that just get to the importance of like comprehensive evaluations to try to figure out what percentage if any of the gender stuff is is really social stuff so i'm going to say yes knowing that my yes is going to be unpopular among some of my colleagues but i think the um the chatter among young people is such that it's it has an effect i think it's undeniable uh, and so, you know, what effect is it? Is it simply affirmation? Where's the line between affirmation and persuasion? I don't think a lot of people ask that question. And it's a hard question. Um, but uh, I, I think there is so much. Um, I mean, I literally have a young trans girl. She's 13 who's been in middle school. She, she, she literally calls out people in her peer group that she she says she describes them as trans trenders. I had the same thing. I interviewed a kid in Portland. Uh, he's a, a trans male. He'd already had a double mastectomy. He told me we we know in our school that some of the kids are faking it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he said faking it, and that's maybe a too harsh a word, but it's the same idea that like there are kids for whom this is a phase, and it, it right, 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 and. And, you know, and the thing of it is the detractors of gender affirming care um, distill down into sound bites and and overgeneralizations. And I don't want to do that. In defending this work, I don't want to overgeneralize. I don't want to minimize the complications. Um, Literally, we had um, we had uh, bills regrettably introduced in dozens of legislatures. Uh, in the last couple of months to limit the work of professionals in gender affirming care with minors. And of course, the other issue is, you know, trans athletes, which is also now big, you know, cultural uh, flashpoint. Uh, my, my response is not to dismiss them. It's to educate them. And, you know, when someone like Senator Rand Paul describes uh, gender confirmation surgery as genital mutilation. I want to, I want to throttle him. You know, he's, he's, he's just mischaracterizing something in such a grotesque way that um, gives fuel to the people who just want to say like Marjorie Taylor Greene, 
there are only two genders, you know, read the science as though she actually has read any of the science about this. You know, there's so much, there's so much uh, ignorance and, and, and worse bigotry that uh, I don't, I don't want to give them uh, any, any ammunition by dismissing out of hand the critiques. Right. And well, I mean, that's, but that's the benefit of focusing on what good clinical practice is. So, I mean, let, let's get into that. When, when kids get to, you know, even seven or eight, you're reaching a point where they're not that far off from where if they want to keep living as that gender and, and look like that gender stereotypically, puberty blockers are, are on the horizon. How, when you're working with that age group, what, what are the big differences and how do you go about helping guide a kid and their family toward that decision or those decisions? The thing is, as the people we know uh, say, uh, puberty blockers as a, as a monotherapy for a child just to, at puberty buys some more time. You know, it, it postpones the onset of hormonally based puberty, which produces the secondary sex characteristics. So, you know, critical to this work is the question of, is, is this identity enduring? And how, how long has it persisted? Well, in the DSM-5, which I'm now a fan of, which uh, the criteria for gender dysphoria is that there it has existed for a minimum of six months, a marked incongruence between gender identity and sex as, as uh, assigned at birth. Six months is, in my view, a minimum I'd much rather see a much longer time frame in which the kid has really been very consistent. They've, they've been very clear. Uh, they're, they're very little equivocation. Um, and that said, I, I also routinely invite people who are questioning to question. I think doubt is a good thing. But if you've got a kid who is demonstrating this to everyone's concurrence. And that's another element of this is like, sometimes you have differences of view between parents. I've, I see it, you know, parents who have been separated or divorced for years, then there's the emergence of a gender that's surprising to the parents. One parent is affirming and the other is not. That's, that's a really tough one. Frankly, it's a really tough one. Um, but as much as possible, we want to look at what is the child doing? What are they saying? How are they feeling? Are, uh, are they clear with everybody? And to uh, put a fine point on this issue, I literally have, in my view, kids who are presenting different gender expressions in different households. And, you know, the sort of psychological interpretation of that might be they are playing to the parent you know they're giving the parent what the parent expects and so what's true you know it's a tough it's a tough question um but yeah enduring and then and then we're we're monitoring the onset of puberty so if if a child is is at puberty and if they're in our clinic they're probably going to be offered puberty blockers if the gender identity is persistent and very clear to everyone that there's concurrence about it. And then that buys some more time, you know, whether an implant or injections, a child can have another couple of years. And then during that period of time, our expectation 
is that they would be working with a gender specialist to explore this, to sort of ferret out the nuances and, you know, uh, entertain any doubts and dialogue with parents. And, you know, and then it's, I mean, even though they're young teenagers, it's a more reliable decision if that decision comes down to let's introduce puberty with the sex hormone that is uh, gender affirming, consistent with the child's gender identity. And that's why I think in our clinic, at least we have very few people who later say, you know, oh, that was terrible. That was wrong. In your clinic, is it, uh, and I'll explain why I'm asking this in a minute, but is it mostly the case that kids who go on blockers proceed to uh, cross sex hormones? Yes, most do. Most do. And it- Go ahead. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I was just. I mean, this is a matter of of white hot contention because the data, I think, out of Amsterdam and uh, the the British clinics or England and Wales clinics all all show the same thing, which is that while the line has been this is to buy the kids time, in reality, an overwhelming majority of them go on do proceed to hormones, and and there's at least two ways to interpret that. One is that there's a selection effect where it's only the very dysphoric kids going on blockers in the first place. That would mean they're getting good comprehensive evaluations. That would sort of mean like the system's working. The other interpretation is that, you know, if a kid is somewhere in the middle, putting them on uh, puberty blockers for better or worse does sort of nudge them in a trans direction. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on which of those is more likely or how that impacts your own work? I I think the first uh, explanation is more likely that we, we do have a selection bias in our clinic. Uh, we saw a kid the other day, though, who um, whose pediatrician tried to put them on blockers and the insurance company didn't approve. And I think uh, whether it's legal or not for the insurance company, according to their contract in California law to do so, I think there's a weight of, of, of an argument to say, a comprehensive evaluation should be done if a child is put on blockers. So they came to us and we put them through our system and, you know, and uh, we'll see, this is a very recent case, but my suspicion is that with the imprimatur of our clinic, that an insurance company is going to say, okay, they got a thorough evaluation. There's a letter of support. By the way, the pediatrician didn't even ask for a letter of support from a mental health person when they tried to get reimbursement for uh, an implant. Uh, I think that happens all the time. I hear uh, so many stories I, like that. It, that. These are the cases I'm frightened about. I'm thinking, okay, randomly some will be approved and they'll go on, they'll have an implant and it's like, but no thorough psychological evaluation and no ongoing monitoring of the kids, no support to the parents for what's going on with the kid. Um, and. Uh, I, I am worried about, about those children, frankly. And, you know, and I, I know, I hope this, this concern on my part is not mistaken for uh, reluctance to use these uh, approaches. It's not, it's just, there has to be, as I think we're agreeing, uh, a proper evaluation. There has to be monitoring of a child. It's not just like, you know, you, you have a broken arm, you, you have a cut, you cast it and then just, you know, take x-rays a couple times and make sure the bone is healing. And then that's it. No more follow-up. Right. You know, 
I, I keep asking you for these scenarios because I think they've received proportionately less attention in mainstream outlets. But when you have a kid who you decide isn't a good candidate for puberty blockers or hormones or is not likely to benefit from them, what does that look like? What are the concerns that might uh, constitute significantly big red flags for you? Uh, poorly managed uh, mental health issues, lack of social and emotional intelligence on the part of the child, uh, an inclination uh, of the child to be uh, agitating for what they want without regard to any feedback from adults, including parents and professionals. When, when there's that kind of uh, agitation, um, some might regard that as a sign of gender dysphoria. I'm not sure that's true because I see lots of kids who have high levels of gender dysphoria and recognize that these things are not to be taken lightly and that they have to, they have to see a psychologist. They have to see a physician, medical provider who knows about these things. They have to have a discussion with parents. I mean, I, I was brought in as a consultant on a case recently where, uh, where the, there's a 15 year old, um, transmasculine young person who is a child of a single mother who happens to be older. Her, her pregnancy, if you can imagine, was at 50. So it's a, you know, older mom of a teenage child. The, the kid basically says to the therapist, just give me my hormones. You know, you're, you're, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to be in therapy. Just give me my hormones. The mother is scared shitless, excuse my language. And uh, this is a podcast. This is not broadcast media, right? Yeah, we swear all the time. (laughs) (laughs) God damn it. So, uh, and and the the reservations of the therapist, I think, uh, were uh, being appropriately considered. Um, this This is a young person who, is socially isolated, kind of doesn't have a lot of friends, and uh, and came to all these conclusions on their own, and was resentful of having to have sessions with a therapist, and then and then what ended up happening was the the child kind of got the mother all riled up, uh, you know, thinking that the therapist misled them, you know that he, you know he would write a letter you know, of support and that that would be it. And, uh, and then come to find out, well, it's a little more involved than that. And, uh, and then the child triangled the therapist, you know, with the mother, it's like the therapist is the bad person. And uh, it was a mess, to be honest. I finally, I, we were in a joint zoom session. I finally just sat back in my chair and just watched it happen and then debriefed with the therapist later. But, um, so these are these are sort of complicated situations where, you know, a child, a young person, even t- older teenager, young adult, really needs to understand that we're we're not doing this to cause problems for them. In fact, quite the contrary, we're trying to do it so that we understand how to support them. Don't you think a lot of young people are coming from online environments where they are sort of trained to treat any questions from adults as inherently hostile or invalidating? Uh, they, they are. And that concerns me a great deal. I had uh, another case, different case, 
of a 15 year old who asserted a trans female identity, but had had a history of psychiatric issues. And uh, initially until we established some rapport, accused me of being a gatekeeper. Oh, you're just a gatekeeper. You know, you're just a gatekeeper. You know, it's like, excuse me? Yeah, the trans woman is it right. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that. It's not, it wouldn't be impossible. It just doesn't, that doesn't really make sense to launch that accusation at you. Thank you. Thank you. So, <laughs> so yeah. So I sort of, as we say, look them in the eye and say, really? You think, you think I'm opposed to, you know, gender affirming care? You know, well, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, talk to my other other patients, you know, previous and current. Um, yeah, so the, the opportunities to be mis, misunderstood are rampant, you know, among all the people we've invoked in this conversation, parents, providers, kids. And, uh, and I just try to be the best psychologist I can be in every situation I'm involved in. And sometimes I'm shaking my head. You know, I'm saying to myself, you know, look, we got to get on the same page. Uh, let's be, let's start getting realistic about our expectations. It is helpful since you invoked it. It is helpful for me sometimes to, to as we say, look someone in the eye and say, look, uh, I'm trans. You know, I have, I have, I have no problem with you being trans, but I also am not going to just decide what, is right for you based on a couple of words you tell me. Right. How does, um, so, so, uh, autism spectrum disorder is, is correlated with gender dysphoria when a kid presents, uh, and they're on the spectrum Asperger's or autism, how does that complicate things or what sort of extra layers does that add? Well, as we know, the prevalence of, uh, uh, we sometimes refer to as double helix uh, situations with trans kids is high. You know, the incidence of, of uh, uh, autism spectrum disorder is probably four to five times uh, the rate of the general population among trans kids. And if you think about how uh, kids on the spectrum process information, it's not surprising in a way um, in that I, I sometimes say the ability to navigate the world when you're thinking about it differently than everyone else, and you're not always paying attention to the same things everyone else is, if you just sort of shift your, your focus from, you know, general functioning in society to gender issues, you know, you, you are innately <clears throat> uh, able to think out of the box, you know, to think, ways that other people don't think, to think in the abstract, to say it that way. And so, you know, if you can entertain alternate uh, explanations for why things happen the way they are, then you can entertain alternate explanations for yourself. And, uh, you know, I think it is true that uh, there, there's no reason to believe that the kids who are on the spectrum who are trans are any less likely to be trans than, than others. But uh, but but the way in which they might come about it uh, might be different, and they might there might be a lot more internal musing, a lot more sort of uh, introspection about uh, themselves in every way than might be true for some other kids who are a little more straightforward. With with kids who are on the spectrum, is it? sometimes more work to sort of 
undo or make more nuanced rigid ideas about gender or am I stereotyping there or rigid ideas about gender roles, I should say. No, I think in, in some ways, um, I think it's easier with kids on the spectrum to have these conversations uh, because they, they know that not everybody perceives the world the same way because they don't perceive the world the same as a lot of people. And um, they also, they also are, uh, I wouldn't say they're immune, but I think they're less uh, driven to focus on the feedback they get from other people or the perceptions of other people. They're more willing to go it alone in their own perceptions of things. So, you know, whereas, uh, you know, a kid who's not on the spectrum might be talking to peers and, and the peer might say, are you sure, you know, you're, why do you think you're that and whatever. And the child might say, well, maybe you're right. You know, I'm going to think about it some more. A child who's on the spectrum might, might not even encounter a peer who raises those questions or hearing a peer raise questions might say, well, you know, you have no idea, you know, I'm me, you know, uh, don't try to influence me. How have your patients changed over the last five years, like demographically or or the way they're presenting or or any other meaningful changes that are worth noting? Well, uh, we did, one of my colleagues did a little informal a survey of uh, count internally of the new cases in 2020 at our clinic. And, uh, and I, I don't know that I'm the proper one to publicize this, but I think we are two to one trans masculine, trans feminine, new, new patients. Meaning natal females versus natal males are, are twice as common. Yeah. Correct. And that's yeah. true. That's been going on everywhere, right? Yeah. I, as far as we know, that's very common. And I have a lot of theories about that. That's probably another podcast, but um, uh, it's very interesting. And uh, some of, and there's and there's no uniformity in my experience. So some of the these uh, assigned sex female patients demonstrated uh, an alternate gender uh, expression and identity very young, and some didn't. And, uh, and some, some, uh, some very visibly experienced a heightened level of gender dysphoria at puberty, and some don't. So, um, you know, this, is, this has been the, the subject of, as you know, a, a wide critique of the work that, you know, we're turning future butch, butch lesbians into trans males. Uh, we're doing irreversible damage to invoke partial title of a, of a book out yeah. uh, to young women. Uh, I think it's a complicated issue, which uh, I think we're going to continue to discover uh, and try to refine our understanding. And there'll probably be some research, but um, we, we know, for example, that, um, and I, this is a little bit of a slippery slope here, but we know, for example, that historically there were more assigned sex females who suffered from eating disorders and that the onset of eating disorders was uh, often related in part to puberty and, uh, and, and body dysmorphia and the dissatisfaction that females in American, broader American society have had with their, with their bodies. And I think there's a very subtle uh, issue there that probably is a byproduct in part of uh, misogynism 
I think it's gotten worse with in the advent of visual media and social media and the desire of young people, which has always been there to fit in and be accepted. And so, you know, has this, is is there some element of truth to the sort of, uh, I want to say, contortion of self-understanding of young females that could result in different conditions, including maybe trans, you know, that again, like I say, it's a slippery slope, but I, but I'm not dismissing it out of hand. You know, uh, it's, I think it's still harder to be female in American society than male. I think, you know, uh, privilege is still present for males in society on average. Uh, and, you know, and as, as with the example of the younger female I invoked earlier, um, it's just better to be a boy, you know, boys have it better. You know, it's like, well, I don't know. Do they probably, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like we're people in our social environments, we're supposed to treat that theory as crazy that part of what's going on is natal females responding to misogynist pressure or hating their bodies or just sort of consuming certain cultural messages and, and, and them turning into feelings about their gender. I got to say, I, it's never struck me as crazy that that could be part of the story, not the whole story, but it's just like, teenagers are weird and they're very, very influenced by everything and they feel things very strongly. So mm -hmm. I guess I'm with you that it seems silly to dis uh, or premature at least to dismiss that out of hand. I, I do. And, you know, you've watched as I have what's gone on in the UK and with, uh, you know, so-called TERFs who, who claim that there's just some kind of a conspiracy to um, pervert females. Uh, there's there's no conspiracy, but there are, as we're conceding, I think, multiple forces at work that are that make it tough to be a teenage uh, person, and and maybe more so a teenage assigned sex female person in in society. Uh, I don't really understand how we got here, in the sense that um, you know, and and with adolescence being effectively prolonged. Uh, I, I don't know whether that's good or not. Uh, you know, we didn't have, I mean, uh, a century ago, you know, when you were 12 or 13, you went to work like an adult, right? You know, if you're on, you're on a farm or in a factory or whatever. And you, you know, you were just a smaller version of the other workers. And, uh, you know, and now we have this long period, uh, of, transition, if that's what it is, between childhood and adulthood. And I think there's some wonderful things about it. Uh, but maybe this is a little bit of a, like an unexpected consequence that, you know, um, it gets confusing for everybody. So let me let you go with a totally softball, non-controversial question about rapid onset gender dysphoria. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll let you off the hook a little. Let me lay out my views on it and you'll tell me if you disagree and if so, why? How's that? Okay. Fair enough. Um, so I, I think listeners will know the basics. I'll include notes in the show notes if you don't, but my view is this. 
it disturbs me that like a mom or a dad after their 12 or 13 year old comes to them and says, I'm trans. It disturbs me that they might go online and just diagnose their kid with rapid onset gender dysphoria, meaning that what the kid said doesn't represent like a, a stable part of their personality or, or their identity. Cause to me, it might with a 12 or 13 year old, you don't know. That's why we have gender clinicians like you. That said, when people say it's a myth, it just sort of flies in the face of so many conversations I've had, both with parents and with some of these kids themselves. You're basically suggesting that no adolescents get confused by what they see online or what their friends say, uh, that that psychology isn't heavily influenced by by peers and culture. It just seems to me that ROGD happens sometimes or something like it happens sometimes but that we don't know enough about it uh, to diagnose anyone with it and that parents definitely shouldn't be diagnosing their kids with it. Do you think I'm coming down in approximately the the right place on that? I do. Uh, And you and I both know that you've gotten more flack than I about this issue, but um, the, the, the study that's invoked, it is not a diagnostic term that any reputable professional organization uh, accepts, as you know. It's based on that one study by, you know, the Lisa Lippman. Yeah, Lisa. Lippmann. Although I will, I will say, WPATH's statement basically said this is not a diagnostic category, but but we should study more yeah. about this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Which we're agreeing. Um, but I think what it reflected most, which I think got misinterpreted as the dismay of a of a certain group of parents, and it was a biased sample. You know, they, they, they found these parents through very conservative publications. Um, and, and the dismay of parents is not surprising, uh, nor is it to be dismissed. So, you know, uh, and, and I, I, it, I, it's a false binary to say, well, we should believe the kids and, you know, and educate the parents. You know, it's like, no, it's more, as we're, we keep saying, it's a lot more nuanced than that. And I say all the time to kids or uh, parents in the consulting room, now virtual consulting room, it's your job to watch out for your kid. And, you know, you'd be derelict if you didn't say, well, what do we make of this? And, you know, how should we deal with this? And, and some parents are more troubled by it than others. Some are more open-minded than others, of course, that's the way humans are. But to dismiss it, no, I don't, I don't out of hand dismiss that there could be some element of peer influence. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess one thing that I disagree with about the critique of the study coming from uh, bias samples is I, I wouldn't mind that if then people said, okay, well, we should also discount studies drawn from community samples of like parents who are supportive of their trans kids. It seems like either bias is a problem or it isn't. And the the sort of political valence of the bias shouldn't matter methodologically. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. This has been a great conversation and, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything – we should probably just do it again down the road because I could ask you a million other questions. But for now, is there anything I should have asked you or anything else you want to say about your work or this subject? Or do you want to quickly denounce me while you still can? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to do that, Jesse. I know you're a responsible, uh, thoughtful uh, writer, interviewer, researcher. and uh, Thank you. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I guess uh, I, 
I, I, well, I'll, 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 I'll tell you on a personal level in a way, having uh, gone through what I've gone through in my lifetime and been an advocate for trans acceptance and trans rights here and in Europe, uh, I, I have to admit that <clears throat> I, I thought the culture wars that were, um, I guess, championed by the Republican Party in the form of a, a previous presidential administration, that that kind of effort would diminish uh, once that administration ended. And unfortunately, that's not what I've seen, you know, with the introduction of these bills in state legislatures and the pushback uh, across the board. So I, I, I wanna say a bit on a personal level, it's tiring. Uh, you know, I'm involved in the professional organizations, as you know, I'm involved uh, in, uh, at UCSF and in uh, private practice. And uh, there are times when I just sort of feel like uh, I want to stand down. And, you know, I've been at times a fierce advocate for the needs of trans people of all ages, young people and so forth. And I do hope that um, it pays off. And I do hope that if, if there is any legacy that I leave it is that she fought the good fight and she didn't win every battle, but she made a mark. Uh, well, from where I sit, you have definitely made a difference. And I'll, I'll just echo what I said in the intro, which is people should definitely check out that bio uh, video where you talk more about your own life and your own journey, um, which is – I thought it was fascinating. I was very glad I watched it. But uh, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Erica Anderson – People can Google you online or check out the show notes if they want to find out more about your work. And uh, let's do it again sometime. Let's do that. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Have a good one.